1909, I've read recently, Tom Clark came back to Ireland and immediately started talking about an insurrection. Why would he, do you think he would have thought like that? The, the sources that I've looked at are very much stemming from the military history, witness statements, and uh, they just present a picture of Tom Clark as this very driven figure whose kind of credibility is very much tied to the notion that Republicans must have a rising. So he seems to have very, very single-minded because there are other analysis of Fenianism which would argue that Fenianism was very important and very influential because of the way it shaped politics of the period. We have lots of different examples of that in different periods like Fenianism's impact, for example, during the land war. But Clark seems to have been personally very driven by revolutionary, insurrectionary tradition of Fenianism. And that seems to have been a message which appealed to a minority of what you might call the, the next generation, the rising generation of Fenian activists. So people who were born around 1890, you know, who'd come to adulthood long after the fall of Parnell and who looked at constitutional, constitutional nationalism as something that was really a kind of a debased political tradition and were, were attracted to almost the polar opposite of that, which was a reversion to, to, to a more radical insurrectionary tradition. So he, he seems to have been the right man at the right time. And something that Clark gave to these younger Fenians was the kind of credibility that he, he brought with him by the fact that he, he did come from an earlier generation of Fenians. He had spent a long time in prison. So that combination seemed to, to work quite well. I suppose some people coming to this period again might, what, what might kind of notice is that, you know, you, you could make an argument that Clark and the younger people who graduated to him represented just one faction within Fenianism. And there are obviously a lot of people who, who disagreed with that insurrectionary kind of single-mindedness and thought that that was a very unsubtle kind of way of advancing nationalist or republican objectives. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that in a second. But first, um, one of the things that I find quite striking in a lot of the uh, testimony about the Rising is this fear of national obliteration, that the Rising was sort of a desperate last throw, as there might not be in Ireland or be an Irish identity if there was no Rising. What do you make of that? It seems to have been an idea that was very widespread. And again, going back to the sources that I'm looking at, the witness statements, it is something that pops up again and again. Most people assume that Home Rule would be implemented Home rule was clearly, I mean, this is before, before the outbreak of the Great War. Home rule is, is clearly very popular. Republicans or separatists, you know, some of them kind of feel that home rule won't be a bad thing because it'll, it'll move the struggle on. But on the other hand, some of them are really alarmed by the idea that home rule could be seen as a, a kind of a satisfactory way of meeting Irish nationalist grievances. And if you, if you look at the big picture, um, since the Act of Union, you know, almost all the big nationalist uh, grievances had been resolved. I mean, perhaps the most important one would be the land issue, which had been resolved with land acts. And you also have had basically political equality with Catholic emancipation in the 1830s. So there is a sense that if the Home Rule issue is addressed, that this horrible scenario of Ireland becoming a bit like Wales or Scotland, this kind of compliant, perhaps even happy member of the UK state and the British Empire. And I think that does seem to have been something that really alarmed a lot of people within this generation. And it's, it's easy for us to say, in retrospect, they appear to have gotten this very badly wrong because not just in Ireland, but throughout Europe, it's clear that there was a huge resurgence of nationalism in the pre-war and post-war um, period. But, but nonetheless, this is, this is the scenario that Irish people would become British that, that seemed to motivate a lot of the separatists who took part in 1916. 
We talked before about how there was, uh, within the IRB and within the volunteers, what there was an insurrectionary faction led mainly by Clerk and McDermott. And there was also what we might call it a defensive faction within the volunteers and the IRB. Um, and this was very much a split in the years leading up to the Rising immediately. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the volunteer movement by the outbreak of, of the Great War, there's probably defined by three different factions within it. You have the vast majority of the Irish volunteers are supporters of the Irish party and they're constitutional nationalists. And then when Redmond takes the, the British side in the war effort and pledges the volunteers to, to the war effort, about 90% of the Irish volunteers back Redmond. So you're left with a very small minority, 5 to 10% of volunteers who, who could be described as ranging from kind of advanced nationalist to Republican. Uh, and within this small minority, then you have two... Well, at least two factions, uh, one of which, the, the, the very small but committed faction, are insurrectionists and they, they want to use the volunteers as quickly as possible to have a, a, a rising against Britain. And then uh, I would say that the, the larger section of the, the radical Irish volunteers are people who are not necessarily opposed to an insurrection but think that it should be something that occurs at the right time, possibly that it should be a last resort. They're not, they don't buy into the idea of a kind of um, a glorious, sacrificial, militarily futile rebellion, but rather they have a, have a more tactically sensible use of how the volunteers can be used. And what these people are arguing between 1914 and 1916 is that if there is to be some sort of insurrection, it should be done uh, at a time when Britain is clearly portrayed as the oppressor. And this could be either when Britain decides to suppress the volunteer movement, you know, arresting its leaders and taking its weapons and so on, or perhaps if Britain decides to impose uh, conscription, as they did in 1918. So many of these people would probably be revolutionaries, but it's a more moderate position than that advocated by the insurrectionists. Some of the, the volunteers themselves described as not even so much a tactical difference as a difference of temperament and psychology, which mm. I think is quite, quite an interesting insight that, that those kind of arguments were being had at the time. Owen McNeil, for example, wrote a, a famous memo in which he argued that those people advocating rebellion were doing so not through any kind of military tactical sense, but rather as a kind of psychological reflection of, of frustration and, and failure. And just before the Rising, famously Owen McNeil uh, tried to call it off, but also other members of, including the IRB, like PSO Hegarty, I think, um, told the, the leaders of the Rising that he was taking no part in it. He thought it was doomed to failure. Several figures within the IRB Supreme Council argued against it. Some, like O'Hegarty, took this was a principled position and stood down from the Supreme Council because of their opposition to insurrection. And you know, people, the decision to uh, rise was, in principle, was made shortly after the outbreak of the Great War. So it was quite a long period until the, the rebellion took place. You've got other people um, who remained within the Supreme Council, but you know, really didn't feel it was a very good idea, but felt honour bound to go along with it. And you've got quite a lot of these people actually in Ulster, which helps to explain why the rebellion in Ulster was you know, such a complete failure, because it, it, it was led by people like Patrick McCartan, you know, who really felt, from a military point of view, the rising really had little uh, purpose. So there's quite a lot of, quite a lot of, not necessarily opposition, but there's quite a lot of people who feel that the rising doesn't really make an awful lot of strategic or, or political sense, but, but felt that they, you know, they were insurrectionists, they were committed to this position. There wouldn't be a better time to have a rising than during the Great War, so, so they felt bound to do it, but without any great hope of um, political or military success. There's a kind of workers' militia formed called the Citizen Army, but within three years of the lockout, that's involved in a nationalist insurrection. 
So what's the trade union uh, militia doing, getting involved in this kind of thing? Well, that's one of the great historical questions of early modern Ireland. I mean, that was due to James Connolly. Jim Larkin was the first there when the Citizen Army was founded. Jack White, who became an anarchist later, was a former British Army officer, sort of organised it and drilled them initially. But when Larkin went to America in 1914, James Connolly took over as the acting general secretary of the Union, and he also took over as commander-in-chief, if you like, of the Citizen Army. Once the war broke out, Connolly seems to have taken a conscious decision to align fairly quickly with the radical nationalists in Dublin, in uh, members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, who effectively controlled the Irish volunteers in the, in the city and in parts of the country as well. And uh, they planned an insurrection with them. Now, there will be a probably an interminable and eternal debate on why Connolly took that road, why he abandoned, if you like, the international socialist principles of his previous life. Now, the reason seems to have been that he saw the war as an opportunity to strike a blow for Irish freedom, which would lead on then to an Irish socialist republic. And in some ways, I suppose it was similar to the gamble that the Bolsheviks took in uh, Petrograd in 1917. Uh, and uh, as we all know now, the, the Bolsheviks led uh, a large part of the international socialist movement down a cul-de-sac. Uh, but at the time, uh, you could understand why people, some people decided to go that route and other people decided to go a different route. But in Dublin, I suppose it was a similar situation. The majority of employers in Dublin at that time were actually Protestant. And uh, that did matter. That did affect people's attitudes as well. So, And they would be seen as British. And the employers were also seen, along with Dublin Castle, as on the other side, which of course they were. And the police, of course, uh, were also seen as uh, part of that repressive machinery, which again they were. So it all reinforced uh, anti British feeling in general, and I think once the First World War broke out, other factors came into play there. The First World War was never popular in Dublin, and, and I doubt if it was ever popular in most nationalist Ireland. And the support for Redmond's uh, you know, pledge of support for Britain, I think, has been grossly exaggerated. And if you look at the evidence on the ground, there's tons of evidence there to suggest that. It was never a popular war in Ireland. It only brought hardship and suffering. Uh, most people hated it from the day one. So 1916 was, in some respects, uh, an event waiting to happen. And I think that uh, the trade unionists in Dublin, like uh, like everybody else in the country, in, nation, in the nationalist community, very easily drawn into separatist agenda. Connolly was actually a very bad union leader and a very bad union organiser. He was a great propagandist. He was a great uh, Marxist thinker. But I think he was far more valuable to the labour movement in Ireland dead than he had ever been when he was alive because he gave an imprimatur of martyrhood to the movement when he was dead. I mean, the, the membership of the transport union reached its lowest level under his stewardship. When he was acting general secretary, uh, the membership continued to fall. It rose again after 1916, despite the very difficult circumstances in which it had to try and recover, with so many of its members shot or imprisoned, and its, its record seized, and Liberty Hall wrecked. Tom Foran, the general president, and Bill O'Brien uh, rebuilt the, the union. But uh, in 1915, the membership, we don't have adequate records, haven't survived for that period, but it would indicate that membership was somewhere around about three and a half to 5,000. Now, when Larkin left, still more or less around the 10,000 mark. And so it, it did survive in some sort of shape, the lockout. It was obviously going to be a long road to recovery, but it seemed to have 
85, and I, I'm fairly convinced that Connolly had decided at that stage to put all his energy into the Citizen Army and preparing for an insurrection. And that's obvious as well in his treatment of, uh, you know, he denounced members who uh, joined the British Army. He refused to give mortality benefit or death benefit to widows of, of members of the Union who were killed in the British Army. Now, there was a good argument for it in the sense of he was saving the Union money uh, by not having to pay out uh, death benefit to widows. Um, uh, and also he could claim quite rightly that the British Army would normally pay the funeral expenses as opposed to maybe other expenses. But nevertheless, the language he used, he didn't beat about the bush when he, he would tell relations when they came, when widows came looking for money to get lost, basically, that uh, their husbands were traitors to the country and for a man who'd been a former soldier himself and knew that a reservist didn't have any choice but to return to the colours I, I find it a bit strange I and mean, any one of the great mysteries about Connolly's life is this pathological hatred he seemed to have for the British Army I mean, I mean lots of people served in the British Army I, my father and my grandfather served in the British Army and they would give out about it and what an awful organisation it was but they, they didn't actually hate it and uh, most ex-soldiers you meet do not have that sort of deep-seated hatred of, of the institution or the people they served with. But for whatever reason, Connolly did seem to have it. And I think uh, it was certainly not a very revolutionary uh, attitude to have. I mean, if you look at the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks sympathised with soldiers. They fomented discontent, empathised with them and fought for their rights, as did other But you know, in the Russian Revolution, Connolly was a very principled individual and a very passionate individual. But an awful lot of his passion seems to have gone into conflict with other people. In this case, um, I think he allowed his feelings to overrule his head. And it'd just be fascinating to know why or what, what was it uh, about his own experience in the British Army that, that made him so uh, hated so much uh, as an institution and pretty well every member of it. But the Irish Citizen Army uh, took part in the rising. Uh, it was effectively decapitated with the execution of Connolly, and people tend to forget now about Michael Mallon and Sean Connolly, who were significant figures within the House of Tsunami, and William Partridge were, well, the first two were executed. William Partridge died as a result of his imprisonment experiences. He contracted Bright's disease, uh, was released to die, basically. But the organization was decapitated by Connolly's execution, and it really became a rump. Uh, Many of its more active members joined Sinn Féin and uh, either joined the Irish Volunteers or were de facto members of the Irish Volunteers. But it really ceased to have a separate, a separate existence to any significant degree after the rising.